from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. If I've managed to take the reader out of their existing headspace into another world, into another person's life, and then return them safely home, then I've done my job. N.K. Jemison is an extremely talented storyteller. My job is to entertain. My job is to transport. Her best-selling fantasy series, The Broken Earth Trilogy, won the last three Hugo Awards for Best Novel, three in a row, which was unprecedented. Now she's got a new collection of short fiction called How Long Till Black Future Month. And here she is reading from one of the stories in that new book. Tookie sat on the porch of his shotgun house, watching the rain fall sideways. A lizard strolled by on the worn dirt strip that passed for a sidewalk, easy as you please, as if there wasn't an inch of water already collected around its paws. It noticed him and stopped. Hey, it said, inclining its head to him in a neighborly fashion. Sup, Tookie replied, jerking his chin up in return. You gonna stay put? It asked. Storm coming. Yeah, said Tookie. I got food from the grocery. Ain't gonna need no food if you drown, man. Tookie shrugged. The lizard sat down on the sidewalk, oblivious to the driving wind, and joined Tookie in watching the rain fall. Tookie idly reflected that the lizard might be an alligator, in which case he should maybe go get his gun. He decided against it, though, because the creature had wide, bat-like wings, and he was fairly certain gators didn't have those. These wings were the color of rusty, jaundiced clouds, like those he'd seen approaching from the southeast just before the rain began. Levy gon' break, said the lizard after a while. You should have got out, man. That's N.K. Jemison reading from her story, Sinners, Saints, Dragons, and Haints in the City Under the Still Waters. This book of stories uh, has a fantastic title, which is... Uh, How Long Till Black Future Man. Which made me laugh. Which made <laughs> me laugh out loud when, really? I, when I first... Read, read of it, mm-hmm. um, which was a title of an essay that you wrote. Yeah, so I was basically talking about the fact that, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I um, used to watch shows like The Jetsons, um, which just seemed like really optimistic, kind of fun, kiddie stories about, you know, family in the future, flying around uh, in flying cars to get to, to work with a robot. Um, and how at a certain point in my development as, as, uh, you know, kind of more conscious human being, um, it suddenly occurred to me that there was nobody black in the Jetsons world and that they all lived in these, these floating habitats above the clouds. Um, what's going on beneath the clouds? Is that where all the black people still are? Were they left behind, um, by the Jetsons as they go off to their beautiful shiny future? Um, and, and what's going 
going on with those people? Are they okay? Um, you know, so these are the kinds of things right. that started to hit me. It occurred to me that as African Americans, we've done lots of processing of our history, as we should, as we must, um, because we've gotten so many false bits of history thrown at us, so many ways for oppressive systems to justify their oppression of us. It's necessary that we understand where we came from. It's also necessary that we start thinking about where we're going. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to look at the ways in which science fiction renders us or doesn't render us um, or leaves unspoken apocalypses all over the place in which we something clearly happened to us, but no one mentions it. Um, you know, so I, I, I feel like it's a good idea to engage with that, too. Right. And that's where it came from. Um, you are a professional mm-hmm. psychologist and earn your living as a counselor and a psychologist. I can mm-hmm. imagine that that discipline would and does inform your fiction. It does. Um, you know, I, I spent 20 years uh, as a counselor working with uh, young adults, uh, late adolescents, um, and just kind of helping them work through issues. And, and you know, my understanding of how people develop into uh, from, from young people into adults, how people cope with problems. Um, you know, I did a lot of work at, at one point with uh, adults in transition, uh, i.e., people having midlife crises. Um, so, you know, there are developmental patterns to be recognized. And there's a standard set of stuff that people go through when they're going through these kinds of life changes. Right. There's a change process. There's change theory. And as you understand these things and you apply it not only to the people who are – who as a counselor that you're, you're encountering, um, but to fiction. Characters um, and stories, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that happens in – the Broken Earth saga is that uh, the protagonist goes through an identity development. Um, she becomes a revolutionary over the course of the story. And this is one of the things that is part of the stages of, of racial identity development for black Americans. And it's a thing that doesn't always happen, doesn't always happen the same way, but it does. There, there are patterns. And so, you know, if I'm depicting a character going through this, of course, I'm going to try and make sure that she's adhering to that pattern in some recognizable right. ways. Behavioral so. science fiction. Sure, well, yeah. I'll take it. <laughs> um, but but um, you're you're only forty six. Yeah, um, you didn't start publishing until your thirties, mm-hmm. right? So what made you decide, like, okay, I'm going to mm-hmm. go for it? <sighs> A combination of financial desperation. Um, and because uh, such big money is well, involved. it wasn't you know it was I an mean, extra, a little extra. It was a side yeah, side yeah. hustle. I, I wasn't expecting big money, but I I had student loan debt, so yeah. you know I had to do whatever I could do to scrape together enough to get out of debt sometime before ninety. Right. Um, and, and now you've um, done that. Yeah, yeah. It was first thing I did with my first uh, first advance check. I paid off my student loans. Nice. So that was the idea: was that if I could make enough money to kind of cover some bills, um, then I would I would be out of debt like slightly less time. Um, So that was the idea. Um, And I started publishing also partly because I'd read a bunch of terrible novels and terrible short stories and I was like, I can do better than this. You know, I didn't think that I had much of a chance of getting published in this field um, where it didn't seem like it, it kind of felt like science fiction and fantasy had a really limited space for black writers. Um, at the time that I first started, there were really only four, uh, and that was Octavia Butler, Chip Delaney, Tanana Reeve. Du- well, no, people never mentioned her, um, but her husband, Stephen Barnes, and uh, Neil Hopkinson. Right. You know, if you're a black woman writing with primarily black characters or any black characters, um, the first person you're going to get compared to is Octavia Butler. 
Um, and if you're not doing exactly what Octavia Butler does, then you have a hard time kind of trying to convince people that this is what you're you're doing is valuable um, or, or, you, or commercially val- yeah. valuable. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Speculative fiction has a lot of stretching <laughs> still to do. It is in recent years becoming a bigger tent that can encompass many kinds of people, many mythologies, many futures, and so forth. And that is a thing that I think um, is a positive change, but it's a change that, of course, is coming with some growing pains and yeah. some pushback and all that usual well, stuff. Uh, how, uh, what's an example of, of what it didn't used to be able to accommodate? Um, well, I mean, in my subfield, fantasy, it's easy to find. Um, you can find dozens, thousands of uh, medieval European flavored fantasies. Um, if you want to find out some some alternate world, uh, you know, version of England or Norway or something, you can find that Game of somewhere. Thrones. Exactly. That's a good example. Um, you know, the, the War of the Roses plus dragons. Yeah. But we've got hundreds, thousands of cultures in the world and thousands of different kinds of mythologies um, and thousands of different kinds of of alternate histories that we could explore. Why aren't we doing that? Um, And only recently has it become more more possible for uh, writers to breach the fantasy field with something other than medieval Europe. Uh A lot of your work is explicitly political. And it strikes me that science fiction and fantasy are are genres that are more comfortably able to accommodate explicit political ideas than a lot of other fictional genres. Are they? I think so. Mm. Because here you are, you're imagining a different world that Mm -hmm. doesn't exist, which Mm. therefore gives you license to, to implicitly, if not explicitly, talk about the the way this world exists in ways it doesn't need to or oughtn't to. Do you know? Yeah. Um, you know, w- what you're talking about is, is the world building and the fact that every choice that world building involves is in some ways a critique of the way that our world actually exists. Um, you know, I think that literary fiction does this as well, though, sometimes. Um, you know, it depends on, on you know, what flavor of literary fiction you're talking about. Um, I've read lots of Toni Morrison, lots of right. yeah, people who have engaged with political stuff. If you are a, a marginalized writer coming from uh, anything other than a, a privileged, uh, you know, sort of ethnic group or, or gender or whatever, um, then inherently whatever you're writing about is going to be political because our existence tends to be politicized. Um, but that said, um, you know, in science fiction and fantasy, you can explore beyond your own identity with that or you can explore uh, beyond, uh, you know, the, the obvious politics, I guess, with that. Right. Well, and, 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 and readers come to it thinking, OK, this isn't going to be reality, mm. so I'll accept – this twist here, this turn, or this different protocol, in a Up way to that a point, yeah, you know, um, there's always a point where they they start to resist. Um, it's it's fascinating to see what politics people are perfectly comfortable with by running them through fantasy. Um, you know, the I mentioned before that whole uh, tendency of fantasy to center on medieval Europe. Uh-huh. Well, you know. There's a whole lot of politics involved in that. You've got stories that uh, – or, or you, you tend to see a lot of stories about the monarchy and how awesome the monarchy is. And hierarchies, is. really yeah. rigid hierarchies taken for granted. Yeah, yeah. yay feudalism. 
it's sort of weird to see all these American writers fetishizing feudalism. I don't know where that comes from, but there's a political meaning to that. Um, but they don't necessarily think so. They think that it's, you know, harmless romanticization. And I don't know how harmless it is, but, you know, there's still some political meaning to it. Um, and when you start to challenge that is when they get resistant. Yep. And that's when you start to understand that, you know, these are politics, but those are the politics that they're not they're not comfortable with. Um, what a pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And well-deserved congratulations on all your successes. Oh, thank you so much. N.K. Jemison's new book is called How Long Till Black Future Month, and it is out now. Coming up next, I'm at the Robert Johnson's Crossroad Blues, our latest American icon. That's next after this commercial break. A man with a guitar standing where two roads in the south cross, talking to God. Or was it the devil? In 1936, the blues guitarist Robert Johnson recorded this song, Crossroad Blues. Johnson died two years after that, at age 27. During his lifetime, he recorded only 29 songs, and those sold a few thousand copies. But in the 1960s, as rock and roll found its blues roots, he was finally discovered big time, but was so little known that the record company then couldn't even find a photo for an album cover. He blew up as rock stars recorded his songs. I first heard Robert Johnson's music on this cover by Cream. In this new installment of Studio 360's American Icons, Giselle Regatau takes a look at Robert Johnson's Crossroad Blues. And her story starts in Johnson's home state, Mississippi. Now that's the courthouse. Uh-huh. Remember I told you he used to play with Ike Zimmerman on the courthouse steps? I think it was the front uh-huh. Robert Johnson was born here, Hazelhurst, Mississippi, in 1911. It's a little town almost 40 miles south from Jackson, with a population of 4,000 people. I'm with two of Robert Johnson's grandsons. This is Stephen Johnson. Yeah, man. That's the courthouse there. You see some of the steps there that they played on. Oh, look, the courthouse is from 1902. Robert Johnson was just 19 years old when he was jamming on the steps of this courthouse with his mentor. Right here, I, I picture Robert Johnson and Ike Zimmerman just playing, playing different licks, you know, calling, calling each other out and people just gathering around and listening. This is my first time in Mississippi. I'm surprised to see the Confederate flag flying in front of the courthouse. Stephen's younger brother, Michael, says he wishes the stage didn't display them in every public building. I think they need to take it down since it represents, you know, things that wasn't pleasing to the eyes of uh, most of the people that's in Mississippi that's uh, 
of the African-American heritage. Three quarters of the population of Hazelhurst is African-American, and about one in four people here live below the poverty line. I asked Michael and Stephen, do you think your grandfather was talking about himself or about the people of Mississippi in Crossroad Blues? Well, I think he's talking about a woman. His encounter uh, or his past encounter with some, some woman. Yeah. I went to the crossroad. He was at a crossroad in his life. A decision had to be made. He, he saw good, he saw evil. And, you know, he'd he been around evil more so than the good with his upbringing and the things he went through in life. So he was asking God for mercy to save him if he pleased. Stephen and Michael never met their granddad. He died in 1938. Actually, they didn't even know he was famous until they were teenagers. But back to the meaning of Crossroad Blues. The only way to really kind of understand what Robert Johnson's songs are about is you have to put them in the context first of his culture and what he was doing, uh, his, the history of the community, Delta life. Barry Lee Pearson is an English professor at the University of Maryland. He's the co-author of the book, Robert Johnson, Lost and Found, published in 2003. Robert Johnson's a walking musician. He's hitchhiking from place to place. The song itself takes off from that. It starts out with this, you know, being stuck at the crossroads. Next verse, I'm standing at the crossroads. I'm trying to flag a ride. I'm trying to flag a ride. Nobody seems to know me. Everybody seems to pass me by. Nobody seems to know me. Everybody pass me by. Okay, we, we have him in this bad situation. We don't know where he's going and where he's coming from. Then Robert Johnson asked for help from three directions. One is praying to God to help him. And then the second one is calling on his friend, actually telling his woman because Robert Johnson's songs are always directed to a woman. He tells his woman to go find his friend Willie Brown and tell him that Robert Johnson's got the Crossroad Blues this morning, and he believes he's sinking down. Crossroad Blues is ultimately about a moment of crisis, something we can all relate to, says Anastasia Solkas. She's a reporter for NPR and a music critic. It is a great song because... On a purely visceral level, you can connect to it. And he's talking about a very specific set of circumstances, right? Being this black man and at this crossroads. You can feel the immediacy of it, and you can connect to it, and you can appreciate his playing. But as a song itself, I think it stands as the test of time, absolutely. Scholar Barry Pearson says Robert Johnson actually recorded two versions of Crossroad Blues. In one, he talks about the sun rising and sinking down. And Robert Johnson thought it over and did the second take, making it essentially nighttime. And that helps fuel the image that we see in all the films and such of Robert Johnson going to a crossroads at night. never get that lost song if you can't make the train talk. Anyway, your plan is going to take you 10 years. 
Well, then maybe I'll just have to do what you did, Willie. I'll go down to the crossroads and I'll strike up a deal with the devil and that'll take care of the whole thing. Don't you ever say that again. That's a scene from the 1986 movie Crossroads. It was inspired by the life of Robert Johnson and it helped popularize the myth of the pact with the devil. There are a few theories about where that story actually comes from. But most historians believe other musicians who were jealous of Johnson's talent created the rumor. Also, the blues was known as the devil's music. Because it was not in a church. It was at a place where, you know, liquor is being sold. Kevin Felez is an assistant professor of music and African-American studies at Columbia University. Dancing, right? Cross-gender dancing is occurring, and all sorts of things are probably going on, right, in these juke joints. Um, so the people that would go to those juke joints in the South, the blues patrons themselves thought of it as sinful music. No matter how it started, the pact with the devil is a great story, and it sticks. It's still repeated even among young blues musicians like Shamika Copeland. And I ain't got time, ain't got time, ain't got time for hate. If you're a blues artist, you're going to hear that song. Oh, well, a blues fan, you're going to hear that song. And I do remember it, and I thought, wow, you know, what is this about? She was about 12 years old when her dad played the song for her. I remember him saying, you know, you can't be making no deals with the devil. <laughs> I don't care what kind of shape you in. You don't make no deals with the devil. And uh, I know that we're grateful that we had Robert Johnson because he definitely uh, birthed the whole new generation of great artists. You know, maybe because he did make a deal with the devil. I don't know. <laughs> Beyond the devil myth. What makes Robert Johnson so iconic? For Bruce Comforth, co-author of an upcoming biography called Up Jump the Devil, The Real Life of Robert Johnson, one of the reasons is his personality. Robert was a very complex person. He was somebody who was always looking for himself. I believe he spent most of his lifetime trying to find out who he was. He was a loner. He had a habit of not making close friends. He didn't ever really want to talk about himself or his family. He would just get up and go and not even say goodbye. Comforth says it all started in his childhood. As we know, Johnson was born in the small town of Hazelhurst. But his mother was struggling to raise her kids. So when he's two years old, she leaves him with his stepfather in Memphis. His formative years, from two through roughly eight or nine, he spent growing up in a very urban environment. And so he basically was an urban child. And this shaped his entire life. This shaped everything that he did. It shaped his education. It shaped his identity. It shaped his musical preferences. Uh, it really had a profound effect on him. But when he's 10, his mother comes back and takes him to live with her in a cotton plantation in Mississippi. This was in the 1920s, when most blacks were struggling with poverty and racial violence in the South. The move was hard for Johnson. He was a city kid, and his grandson, Stephen Johnson, says working on a plantation was the last thing he wanted to do. They were hard-working laborers on plantations and certain things, and... and 
the blues was their way out. You had the blues and you had the gospel. They were either saying one or the other in the fields. So, you know, it 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 it, 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 it song blues was told a, a a way of life. Robert Johnson also started playing instruments at a young age. As a child, he nailed strings on the side of his house to create a little guitar. When he was 17, he was already semi-professional, playing at parties. That's when he got married to Virginia Travis, who is believed to be just 14 years old then. But a couple of years later, tragedy struck again. Virginia and the child she was expecting died when she was in labor. Johnson was devastated. He was lost. He decided to go back to his hometown of Hazelhurst, trying to look for his father. He didn't find him, but it was in a juke joint there that he met his mentor, another African-American blues performer called Ike Zimmerman. Ike was one of the best guitarists in all of southern Mississippi. And so Ike taught Robert everything that he knew and together they would, you know, they would go different places. Ike would take him on jobs that he was playing. He would take him to juke joints. He would take him to picnics and fish fries. And he would take him to play in lumber camps. And so Ike really helped Robert hone his whole professional persona and his musical style. Robert Johnson's technique was mind-blowing. It's not something that other great guitarists like Grammy Award-winning John Leventhal can easily replicate. So he has a slide on one finger, which in his case was probably what is referred to as a bottleneck, which is a piece of smooth glass, probably taken from the top of a bottle. So it's a very expressive way to play the guitar, and it has a kind of element of the human voice, right? So it's which is different than with my fingers, right? During Crossroad Blues and a lot of these songs, he's kind of playing a, he's playing a rhythm. And he's going, you know, I can't, I can't really even do it. It's so sophisticated. But he's playing that with the slide up high, but he's keeping the rhythm going on the bottom strings with his thumb more than likely. It's as if Robert Johnson played the guitar the way people play the piano. One hand is playing the rhythm, and the other hand, the melody. There's a way that guitar players play. One of them, it would just be to, you know, strum the guitar all at one time, or this. It's one idea, and the guitar is is uh, basically that's what the only thing the only thing the guitar is doing. Um, or guitar players will tend to play lead, right? Robert's doing all of that together, and that's what piano players do because they have left hand, right hand, um, and so their left hand is sort of making the bass go, and their right hand is playing the harmony, and it's also playing the melody. The left hand can also play part of the harmony. So the left hand is moving, boom, da, boom, da, and the right hand's going, ba do ba do ba ba da ba boom, boom, da. It's wild. It sounds like there's two or three guitars talking to each other. 
John Perales is the chief pop music critic at the New York Times. There's the low rhythm guitar. There's the high slide chords that answer him whenever he feels like it. There's a high kind of keening kind of train whistle, single note thing going up at the top. And they're all in this completely volatile dialogue, trialogue. They're all talking to each other. They're all talking to his voice. You'd be hard-pressed to find any exact repetition throughout the song. And yet it swings, it drives, it cries. It's just a beautiful thing. Robert Johnson's technique is still studied by guitar aficionados all over the world. And the way that he's going to do that is... YouTube sessions like these have millions of views collectively. So we're dealing with the blues in A so here. Yeah, a introduction. Johnson traveled all over the South performing, and he also went further north to New York, New Jersey, Chicago, even Canada. He and the blues influenced not only rock, but hip-hop as well, says Kevin Feles from Columbia University. If you read the polemics around blues as devil's music from the 1920s, 1930s, and you read the stuff now around the moral panics around hip-hop, they're pretty much the same. And it's basically around that blues sensibility of speaking honestly about your feelings, um, whether they're polite or not, honestly speaking about sexuality, honestly speaking about a crisis of faith rather than affirmation, right? So all of those things. Michael and Stephen's dad, Claude, knew his dad was a blues musician, but he didn't know he was famous until the 1990s. When Claude's mom became pregnant, their family didn't let her marry Johnson. They were religious, and he played devil's music. Claude only saw his dad a couple of times, even though he's Johnson's only known son. He ended up going to court and was declared Robert Johnson's sole heir in 1998. Claude died a few years ago, and today Robert Johnson's state is managed by his four grandchildren and two step-grandchildren. Michael says Robert Johnson is also a myth for them. Actually, he's a myth, you know, because uh, we have never met him or uh, engaged in a conversation with him. You know that we had a, a famous person that was in our family, but we know very little about him. Robert Johnson died in Mississippi at the age of 27. His death, like his life, is filled with mystery. Some say he was poisoned by a jealous husband. Others say he died of pneumonia, or maybe it was syphilis, or heavy drinking. In the small museum that his grandsons run in Crystal Springs, which is close to his hometown, there are no personal objects that belong to him, not even a hat. And while many myths still surround Robert Johnson, other blues musicians may have claimed to the lore themselves. When I was in Jackson, I went to a blues jam session at a club called Halls and Malls. There, I was approached by a member of another Johnson family. My name is Vera Johnson Collins. I am the niece of legendary blues trailblazer Tommy Johnson, who is my fraternal uncle, who I heard many stories about the crossroad. 
Vera claims it was her uncle who actually sold his soul to the devil at a crossroad, and that Robert Johnson probably stole the story from him. She's now hoping to make a documentary to set the record straight. I'm not trying to move Robert out of his place. I just want Tommy to have his rightful place. There's a place in history for Tommy, like I said. He was born in 1896. He's with Charlie Patton, Willie Brown, Grandpa Staples, and those people. They were the trailblazers. They was the early pioneers of the pre-war blues before Robert even thought about being born. Robert Johnson's grandson, Stephen, heard that story before. He actually went to school with Vera. He says she might be right about the crossroad myth, but that doesn't really matter. Johnson himself was not apocryphal. He was a musician of immense talent who was so underappreciated when he lived that how he lived is a big question mark. I had to tell the young people what made him so famous. It was his love for his music, his love for life, and the fact that he, he enjoyed, he really enjoyed what he was doing. Giselle Regatau produced our story, and Studio 360's American Icon series is funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Studio 360. That's the jacket cover. Yeah, it doesn't even say nope, anything. It's not going to say anything. On the so it's just going to be like this. It's going to be that simple, beautiful, classic. In 1984, a documentary film crew captured a British heavy metal band as the band toured America, promoting an album with a daringly minimalist cover. I think he's right. There's something about this that's so black. It's like, how much more black could this be? And the answer is none. None's more black. Except most of them weren't actually British. And it was, of course, a, a fabulous parody band in a fabulous parody documentary called This Is Spinal Tap. It was directed by Rob Reiner and mainly improvised by the actors playing the Spinal Tap band members, Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, and Harry Shearer. This is Spinal Tap essentially invented a genre. It was the template for the brilliant mockumentaries that Christopher Guest went on to direct, including Best in Show and Waiting for Guffman. And it all started 35 years ago this week when This is Spinal Tap was released. Our story begins with the fake band's real biographer. This is Peter Occhio-Grosso. I'm the author of Inside Spinal Tap, which I wrote with the cooperation of the band after I saw the movie. I think it's the best documentary about a rock band that I've ever seen. The fact that the band was a fictitious band is beside the point. Hello, my name is Marty DeBerge. I'm a filmmaker. The documentary nature of the film was really intriguing. It was fun to see how director Rob Reiner played with that. In 1966, I went down to Greenwich Village, New York City, to a rock club called the Electric Banana. Don't look for it, it's not there anymore. But that night, I heard a band that, for me, redefined the word rock and roll. That band was Britain's now legendary Spinal Tap. So in the late fall of 1982, 
When I heard that Tap was releasing a new album called Smell the Glove, I jumped at the chance to make the documentary, if you will, rockumentary that you're about to see. There were a number of good documentaries that had come out before that. I'm thinking particularly of Penelope Spheris's Decline of Western Civilization, covering Southern California punk rock scenes, which had similar elements of absurdity. My name is Penelope Spheris, and I am what they might call a movie director, film director, filmmaker, all that stuff. I was friends with Harry Shearer because I had worked with him on some Albert Brooks movies for Saturday Night Live. I vaguely knew Chris Guest and Michael McKean. And in the early, early stages of This is Spinal Tap, we sat there and we talked about what it would be like if I directed it. It was the same premise, exactly. There was this fake, hyper-English rock band that were having their ins and outs and daily troubles and going on tour. But I think Rob did a better job with it than I would have done, to be honest with you, because at that point, I felt that they were making too much fun of metal music, and I held it so dear to my heart that I didn't want to make fun of it. I didn't want to do it. I guess it was a bad decision on my part. You go right straight through this door here, down the hall, yeah. turn right, yeah. and then there's a little jog there, about 30 feet, jog to the we left. We don't have time for that. Go straight yeah, ahead. We'll go straight you. ahead, yeah. turn right the next two corners, and first door you sign, authorized, personnel only, yeah. open that door, that's the stage. You think so? You're authorized, you're we'll musicians, aren't you? Yeah. There were people, even at the press screening, who weren't aware that it was a joke. Why wouldn't they make a documentary about a good rock band? The last time TAP toured America, they were booked into 10,000-seat arenas. And it seems that now they're being booked into 1,500-seat arenas. And does this mean the popularity of the group is waning? No, no, not at all. I, I, I just think that their appeal is becoming more selective. I mean, I remember going to the screening and not knowing exactly what to expect and how it was so much better than we figured it would be. It's a satire of early heavy metal. Let's talk about your reviews uh, a little bit. This pretentious, ponderous collection of religious rock psalms is enough to prompt the question, what day did the Lord create Spinal Tap, and couldn't he have rested on that day too? Never heard that one. I'm Robert Criscow. I've been a rock critic since 1967. My 2018 collection, Is It Still Good to You?, was just nominated for a National Book Critics Circle Award. The review you had on Shark Sandwich, which was merely a two-word review, just said, shit sandwich. The rock world is, especially in those days, very poorly understood by the film world. Nevertheless, they got a lot of the details right, and insofar as they didn't, it was for comic effect. Well, when you get those wonderful comedians involved, it's great because it gets a little bit dark, but then it comes back up and it's really funny. I mean, it was a beautiful kind of a combination of pseudo-scripted, pseudo-documentary, pseudo-acted, you know. It was a hybrid and brilliant at that. They created a backstory. They conceptualized the band from their early Beginnings. So we became uh, the originals. Right. Well, there's, uh, a, there's another group in the East End called the Originals, and uh, we had to rename ourselves. And the new originals. New originals. Yeah. And then uh, they changed their name back to the regulars, and we thought, well, we could go back to the originals. About what's the point? But we became the Thamesmen at that point. Stop wasting my time. You know what I. 
as well as their continually deceasing drummers. Your first drummer was... Uh, he died in a bizarre gardening accident. You know, the authorities said, you know, best leave it unsolved, really. You know. That context gives the movie a lot of its richness. And he was replaced by... Uh, Stampy Joe. He died. Uh, the official explanation was he choked on vomit. When you're dealing with guys like that who are just so darn good at improv, you can just let them go. Stampy's replacement, Peter James Bond, he also died in mysterious circumstances. We were playing a, a, a festival. Blue, jazz Blues Festival. Where was that? Well, blues I, Jazz, really. Blues Jazz Festival. It was, the, it was, the, uh, it was in the Oil... Isle, Isle of Lucy. Lucy. The yeah. Isle of Lucy. Oil of Lucy. Jazz Blues Festival. And uh, it was tragic, really. He exploded on stage. Part of what they set out to do was to make fun of all the levels of the business. I have to take my hat off to him for making fun of the managers and the promoters and the record companies and those kind of people. Thank God somebody made fun of them, you know. They deserve it. They're the ones taking all the money. The Boston gig has been canceled. What? I wouldn't what? worry about it, though. It's not a big college town. I thought the character of the manager was very, very convincing as this kind of smart guy who's going to walk away who really is trying to do an impossible job and fixing up problems that happen at the last minute. Those guys actually have to do that. Do you know what oh, I spend my time doing? I sleep two or three hours a night. There's no sex and drugs for Ian, David. You know what I do? I find lost luggage. Yes. I, I locate mandolin strings in the middle of Austin. It was almost hard for them to do things that were more absurd than the actual record companies did. Plus the promotional problems and the fact that the records weren't in the store. All that stuff really happens. But what happens with the, with the record store, with the promotion, and nobody shows up? This isn't a friends. personal thing, Artie. Nobody's coming in Forget the store. Forget personal thing. We had a relationship here. Forget about personal. What about a relationship? But, I mean, that tour that they go on is not a real tour. They're introducing Stonehenge in Texas. I do not for one think that the problem was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. I really think you're just making a much too big a thing out of it. Making a big thing out of it would have been a good idea. Metal bands do put a lot of importance on their stage design to the degree that sometimes it gets ridiculous. Because I remember when I was out shooting the OzFest one time, Sharon Osborne got mad at Fred Durst because he had a giant toilet on the stage. Do you play all, I mean, do you actually play all these or? Well, I play them and I cherish them. The gear pride, that's pretty real. I'm the not, sustain, listen to it. I'm not hearing anything. You would, though, if it were playing, because yeah. it really, it's famous for its sustain. I mean, you can yeah. just hold it. Well, I mean, so you'd have to pull. You can go, go and have a bite. No, you'd still yeah. be hearing that one. Yeah. Sonic Youth, Thurston Moore, and Lee Ronaldo, I mean, they traveled around with a guitar museum and played some of those guitars and had others in reserve in case something happened to the ones they liked. See, still got the, uh, the old tagger on it, so you never even played it. This is a top to, uh, you know, what we use on stage, but it's very, very special because if you can see, yeah. the numbers all go to 11. Then Amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? Loud volume in heavy metal is extremely important. Personally, I've been to concerts before where my insides shook, literally. And I remember one time I went backstage at an ACDC concert just at the moment that the cannons went off. 
And I'm pretty sure I had my brain scrambled from that. It was <laughs> indescribable the way it felt. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. I mean, once again, it's exaggerated. But the problem with the cover that Walmart won't display because it's dirty? You put a greased, naked woman on all fours with a dog collar around her neck and a leash. And a leash. And a man's arm extended out up to here, holding on to the leash and pushing a black glove in her face to sniff it. You don't find that offensive? They're not going to release the album because they have decided that the cover is sexist. What's wrong with being sexy? I mean, there's no... Sexist. This is sexist. Oh, we said ist, ist. In the early 80s, that's not a word that most metal musicians would have had on the tips of their tongues. Let's face it, there's like very few times where women were treated in a more demeaning way than during that late 80s metal. Metal in those days, although there were already a few exceptions like Lita Ford, was a very, very male preserve. To be fair, Spinal Tap was making fun of the lower echelon of bands and the kinds of musicians who take themselves so seriously when their talent level is negligible. Even though the Spinal Tap guys perhaps were not, you know, the Motorhead or the Judas Priest skills and all that of musicians, they didn't do bad. You know, you kind of believed it. The three principals, McCain and Guest and Shearer, did actually perform at other times. They came back. They made albums. They are good musicians. They're good enough to imitate a really bad band. And sometimes it's harder to imitate bad music than good music. We make fun of heavy metal, but the fact of the matter is that of all the rock genres, it's probably the most virtuosic. My solos are my trademark. Most metal bands can really play, and many of them know music, especially 19th century European classical music. I'm really influenced by Mozart and Bach, and it's sort of in between, though. It's really, it's like a Mach piece, really. Metal remains a world unto itself. And my sense is they do understand that there's something comic about what they do. But at the same time, it's deadly serious for them. When it came out in the mid-80s, the movie didn't do especially well. But the concept of it was so understood, particularly by people inside the music industry, that the video cassette of the movie became one of the most widely watched videos on many rock bands tour buses, including the heavy metal bands that the movie was intended to send up. I think metal fans like anything metal. A lot of people like it just for the sophisticated humor of it. They got the joke, even though it was on them. That's another tribute to the quality and the the brilliance of the conception behind the movie and the execution of it. All right, so they're foolish and not too bright, and their sexual politics leave a great deal to be desired. Nonetheless, there's a sense, well, they did as well as they could and maybe a little better with what they were given. There's a sense of human connection between those guys. Do you remember the first song that you guys ever wrote together? All the way home, probably. Can you remember a little bit of it? 
I'd love to hear it. Christ. <laughs> Some black coffee, maybe. How's it go? Beside the railroad track. And I'm waiting for that train to bring you back. Bring me back. If she's if 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 she's not on the 519, then I'm gonna know what sorrow means, and I'm gonna cry, cry, cry all the way home, all the way home, Our story was produced by Jenny Cataldo and BMP Audio. And Spinal Tap, the band, will reunite this spring for a performance at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City. That's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. And our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra lopez Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. He was a loner. He had a habit of not making close friends. Thank you very much for listening. He would just get up and go and not even say goodbye. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. I started with the prompt that was given to me as a teenager, which is, can you draw a personal connection between your own life and the Constitution? Reliving a high school speech competition on a Broadway stage. I got pretty quickly to Reproductive Rights and to Roe v. Wade. Heidi Schreck's great play, What the Constitution Means to Me. That's next time on Studio 360.